You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Uh, We have lost P.E. McAllister uh, since we've recorded our last podcast, and we miss him very, very much. Thank you for joining us as we talk to Mike Riley. Now, who is Mike Riley? Besides being Thelma to Ed Tracy's Louise, (laughs) he had the absolute honor, I'm sure, to be the chairman of Robert Francis Kennedy's 1968 Indiana primary effort, which resulted in a significant win for the then senator and really catapulted him to what was a series of primary victories, which unfortunately ended with his assassination after winning the California primary in June 1968. It's fair to say that November 22nd, 1963, not only changed the history of our country, but completely altered the trajectory of American politics in the last 50 years of the 20th century. Mike Riley was there when Robert Kennedy made what was clearly an indelible impression upon Americans of all levels, and quite frankly, both parties. Mike, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Quickly tell us a little bit about where you're from and how you got started in politics and your connection, how it became uh, concrete with the Kennedy family and the Kennedy campaign. Well, I grew up in a small town, Linton, Indiana, and my father had been a union member and active in the union and seeing him uh, engage in union politics I took an interest in politics at a young age and uh, when I was 16 I got elected as uh, the Green County Young Democrat President and campaigned for the gubernatorial candidate that year and liked it. Uh, I then went to college at Indiana State. Uh, I was president of the Young Democrats there. I then went to law school and uh, kept my interest in politics up, but started working for the uh, senior party, if you can say that. Uh, And Through that, I then was elected state Young Democrat president 
so that gave me a statewide political office where I met people from every part of the state. When Robert Kennedy decided that he was going to run, uh, there was a governor by the name of Brannigan who was a Democrat who was for Lyndon Johnson. So the party people would not, uh, the senior party people wouldn't buck the governor because that's where their bread was buttered, so to speak. Patronage was much more. Yes. It was uh, very prominent. You had to have the approval to get a state job. You had to have the approval of your precinct committeeman, your ward chairman, your county chairman. So one day I'm in my law office and I get a phone call and my secretary said, uh, Ted Kennedy's on the line for you. And quite frankly, I thought it was probably Louis Mayhern, our, <laughs> our Ed, or uh, someone that had a good Ted Kennedy impression voice. And so... He comes on the phone and he goes, I've talked to people in Indiana. My brother would like you to to be chairman of his committee. He's going to run in the Indiana primary if he gets on the ballot. And would you do that? And then he paused and he goes, do you think I'm really Ted Kennedy or not? And I said, <laughs> Well, if you're not, you've got the accent down pretty well. And let's uh, let's add some dates into this a little bit. So, so that, how old were you in 1967, 68? Uh, I was, I believe, I was 29. I was 29 uh, in 1968, and, uh, and so. And I had my was partners in the law practice. Yeah, you said law, law practice. So you had been established by them, but you had made your your bones, for lack of a better term, through all of your work in Indiana State and the Young Democrats throughout the state. So it, it was not surprising for someone to reach out to you, even someone as prominent as a sitting senator, which Ted Kennedy was by then, to ask for help in his brother's campaign. Well, it. it it was sort of a dream come true for me in that the senior party members, none of them wanted to touch that campaign. And so I love the Kennedys and I have grown or I grew over the campaign to, to think of how wonderful they were as government servants, public servants, and uh, just wonderful people. And John Kennedy would have been, his election in 60 against Nixon would have been the first election you could have voted in because you were 21 years old at the time? that's right. And then once you got over the fact that Ted Kennedy had called you, what came next? Well, Bobby's uh, press agent called, his name was Frank, Mankiewicz, Mankiewicz. Mm-hmm. and he said, okay, I'm going to put out a press release. 
the senator is going to come in town tomorrow. Uh, we're going to send people from outside the state to get the uh, candidate, Robert Kennedy, on the ballot. And we only had like eight days to get 550 registered voters certified in each congressional district. Which they, is a significant job. was a very hard job. In uh, that night, a man by the name of Gerard Doherty, who had been chairman of Teddy Kennedy's first Senate campaign, flew in. I picked him up, and he was the truly the organizing force of all the different uh, people associated with the Kennedy campaign. You mentioned earlier that Democrat Governor Roger Brannigan was running as a stand-in for President Johnson. So Johnson was was eligible for a third term. So the 22nd Amendment didn't apply to him particularly because he hadn't served enough years fulfilling the term of President John Kennedy. Talk a little bit about that process, which was very popular and frequent at the time where a sitting governor or prominent person's name on the ballot, but he would really be representing someone else. Well, Brannigan, Governor Brannigan was requested by Johnson to do that so that Johnson did not have to take the time to campaign in Indiana. And if Brannigan was elected as the favorite son, is what they called them, right. uh, he would transfer his votes to Johnson as far as delegates were concerned. At the convention. At the convention, yes. Let's put a little more time stamp on it. I've got some of these dates written down just so that everyone who's listening understands that there was a progression of when these things happened. Uh, And we'll ask, I want to ask you about this in a little bit, but Eugene McCarthy was the first Democrat to announce his opposition to president Johnson in the primaries. He did so on November 30th of 67 on March 16th. That's when Robert Kennedy declared his candidacy for the presidency. This is all 1968, at least March is. March 31st is when President Johnson announced on national television that he would not seek another term. The Indiana primary, excuse me, uh, March 27th is when Kennedy announced his intention to run in the Indiana primary. April 4th, as most people know, is when Robert Kennedy, uh, when Martin Luther King was assassinated and Robert Kennedy gave that speech. We'll ask you about that as well. The Indiana primary was held on May 7th, which Robert Kennedy famously won, and then he was assassinated the night of June 5th, 1968. So stepping back through the chronology, were you someone who was disaffected with Lyndon Johnson's leadership, and were you looking, as a prominent Democrat in Indiana, for someone else to run for president? Well, you know, I was raising a family. I had two daughters that were young. I was establishing a law practice. I can't say 
that I was really knowledgeable about the Vietnam War, uh, which was a very important part of the reason that Lyndon Johnson finally opted out not to run again. But I was opposed to the war, but I did not, I was not by any stretch of the imagination an activist uh, against the war. Did you go clean for Gene? No. Uh, you know, I, I did not think that he was the kind of candidate that I wanted to back, nor did I think that he could take on Lyndon Johnson and beat him. And clean for Gene is a reference to uh, Democrats who shaved their beards and mustaches to be clean for Gene McCarthy, who was a senator who had decided to take on Lyndon Johnson. Did the fact that Robert Kennedy started to make noise and clearly people were drafting him one way or another to run for president. He, he was, if not President Johnson's equal in Democrat politics, certainly the family was and the love that people had in admiration for Robert Kennedy equaled anything that Lyndon Johnson could have ever hoped to have accomplished. But when Robert Kennedy starts to make noise and the news media starts to report on the fact that he could run, did that pique your interest? Like, okay, this is a whole nother level. Yes, it did. Uh, I went to the county chairman who was uh, a lawyer named Jim Beatty, and I told him that I'd seen on TV that uh, Senator Kennedy might run in that if he did— I wanted to be involved in that campaign. And from him, Jim Beatty went to Andy Jacobs, who was congressman then, and told him about my interests. Andy Jacobs was contacted by Ted Kennedy, and he gave my name to Senator Ted Kennedy. And there's a connection there, one that we uh, talked about in our podcast about Birch Bayh, uh, the connection between the Kennedys in Indiana was very strong. And what a lot of people know, and maybe some people don't know, is that Birch Bayh saved Ted Kennedy's life after a plane crash. And is it natural for you, was it natural for you, for the Kennedys to look to Indiana, whether the Bayh or Jacobs connection or both, for support? Well, uh, yes, that would be uh, partly true. The reason that Bobby Kennedy wanted to run in Indiana was, and in, in his staff people would say this, it was his West Virginia. His brother ran in West Virginia, and came, if he could win that primary, a state that was highly Protestant, uh, non-Catholic, that if he could win there, then it would show the powers that be, that he could win anywhere. Bobby Kennedy knew Indiana was conservative, knew that we were typically a Republican state, in that if he could win in Indiana, he could win anywhere in the country. And so that's why they put so much resources into Indiana financial people, 
advertising, they went all out in the state of Indiana. And you referenced 1960 when John F. Kennedy defeated Hubert Humphrey in the West Virginia primary and did a lot to put to rest of the whole, the Vatican is going to control the White House if we have a Catholic president. And then you mentioned about Kennedy really going all out here in the state. What was it like when either he walked off the plane, got out of the car or walked in the room and extended his hand and said, I'm Bobby Kennedy. Thank you for your help. Do you remember the first time you met him? Yes, I, I do. Uh, he flew into the state to file with the secretary of state's office. I had gathered all the petitions that certified him as having 550 uh, people in each congressional district. When we had a crowd of about 10,000 people on the State House uh, lawn on his way from the motorcade into uh, the Secretary of State's office. And it was in the evening. He came through, and I can remember he had his, he had lost his cufflinks. His shirt was tattered because of all the people whose hands he shook on the way in. And that was a reoccurring theme in his campaign appearances in other states and other cities. People were tearing his clothes off, tearing his cuffs off. That's exactly right. Yes. Uh, he... I met him right there in the Secretary of State's office. He uh, obviously had been briefed on my name and and knew a little bit about me and made some small talk, uh, but it, it was a memorable evening. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise. And sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Now, Kennedy, one of the reasons he wanted to come to Indiana, to your point earlier, was to prove that a Catholic with, I don't know how many kids at the time, 10 or 11? Probably. Because Ethel was Ethel she Kennedy was, was pregnant, pregnant during the primary. That's exactly yes. right. But his first stop in Indiana campaign stop was at the University of Notre Dame. An interesting choice for someone who's trying to make that sort of contrast. Were you involved in that stop or in those decisions? No, I wasn't involved in the University of Notre Dame. Uh, I, I did not know that. He did that until sometime after. Uh, on the night that he came in and filed, we then went to the old Murad Hotel, and uh, which I'd lined up a series of rooms, and he gave a, a press conference and then invited me up to his room to get to know me better and a couple of the people that had helped me put these signatures together. And I think it was Louis Mayhern and Bill Schreiber, who has, is deceased, but he was very active in Democrat politics. 
So what was it like to interact with him? I, it, I mean, I'm a coal miner's son from Linton, Indiana, so I really didn't have any experience in hanging out with senators. Uh, <laughs> so it was sort of impressive to me. Uh, but I remember, you know, everybody in the press said how ruthless he was. And I, when I was talking to him, he just came around as a really nice person who was interested in you, interested in what you had to say. And uh, in no respect was he arrogant or, uh, you know, treated you like a uh, servant rather than a co-worker in his campaign. Well, he was a, you know, he's a campaign manager for multiple campaigns and was a, worked for, um, I don't know if he, did he, he, I think he worked for uh, Joe McCarthy as part of his uh, Senate committee, but, but, you know, was attorney general and, you know, had to run again in 64 as the Senate. So, I mean, there's a certain amount of ruthlessness that just comes with running campaigns, <laughs> Ed Tracy. <coughs> And so, I mean, that's just part of who you are, right? That's true, yes. Did you find him to be, in all the books that I've read about him and read about that campaign, what gets reinforced multiple times is that he just was really bright. Is that your impression, both as a campaign strategist and tactician, but just in general? Well, he was... Probably in my lifetime, he's one of the brightest people I've ever met and been around. But with that part of him, the thing that most impressed me was his compassion. When he was a senator before he ran for president, I remember seeing on TV the way he visited uh, Shaq's in Mississippi, he was the only senator that ever did that, and he was intimately involved in finding out the background of poverty in our country. And he didn't just sit in his office. He went out and actually viewed it and had plans to help eliminate poverty as he saw it in in this uh, state of Mississippi. And that was part of his opposition to the Vietnam War. That's correct. When, when he announced, and when McCarthy announced the previous year in 67, much of their messaging and rationale for their campaign was in contrast and opposition to Lyndon Johnson. Then in March of 68, President Johnson says he's not going to run. How much do you think the Kennedy campaign had to change its rationale, its messaging, its its drive? Because now it's no longer about opposition to Lyndon Johnson. It's got to be about something else. Well, I can tell you that night I was watching Johnson's speech along with Ted Kennedy and uh, two or three other people. And when Johnson made that announcement, uh, Ted Kennedy had no idea that he was going to do that. 
And so I went, they wanted to call all the party, different party leaders throughout the country. So we went downtown to my office and I had three or four lines. I got a, another law firm across the hall to let us use their office. And we had maybe 10 people that were placing calls to prominent political people that were Johnson supporters right. that uh, Ted wanted to talk to. And I can remember that I was on the line with Mayor Richard Daly. And, uh, you know, I'm holding the phone while Senator Kennedy's talking to these different people. And I thought, you know, I read about Daly. I thought he would be very difficult to talk to. But he wasn't. He was a nice guy. And, you know, we had a, a chatty conversation. And then Ted talked to him. Uh, he talked to probably every powerful Democrat in the country that night. From your office? From my office. In Indianapolis? Yes. And so when you went to bed that night, did you go, you just got to be kidding me? Uh, well, during the whole campaign, I thought that every night. I thought, my God, this is neat. <laughs> you know. I think that's a fair way to put it. Those of us who've been involved in, you know, winning elections or had election results change our lives in one way or the other, we go to bed that night or we wake up the next day and we're like, just I, I can't possibly believe that this just happened. In the podcast we recently posted with Bart Peterson, he talks about election night 1999, where he gets a phone call both from Bill Clinton who was president at the time, and Al Gore, who was vice president at the time. And I'm like, so the day before you're talking to Scott Chin, and then the next day you're talking to the president of the United States, and he's like, yeah, that's kind of how it goes. Yeah. Well, the thing, one night I came home and I told my wife, I said, guess who called me today? And she goes, I have no idea. She wasn't really a big fan of me doing this. And... <laughs> And she was I a said, Republican then. Is what well, saying. probably. <laughs> uh, I said uh, uh, that Brinkley and Huntley had called me uh, for my quotes on their TV show. And she goes, so what? <laughs> kind of thing. But, but that, you know, that was sort of neat. I'd have... New York Times reporters call. I would have a number of prominent journalists call. And, you know, it was it was a lot for a kid from Linton. Absolutely. Huntley and Brinkley were ABC at the time or were they NBC, NBC, NBC at the time before John Chancellor, NBC right. at the time. Thank you. So it's the campaign progresses. You give a speech at Ball State. You leave Ball State. To come to Indianapolis, and the date is April 4th, 1968. If I have my memory correct, Robert Kennedy gets off his plane, his campaign plane, and is told that Martin Luther King has been assassinated. Were you there for that? 
And were you there for the speech at 17th and Broadway that he gave that night? Well, if I could explain, it was going to be a campaign stop at 17th and Broadway. Correct. Which is a, a predominantly African-American. I organized, it was going to be a campaign rally. And I was in charge of organizing that. And I had different uh, groups of black a- activists that were helping us clean up the area uh, and uh, get ready for that campaign appearance. So that was already set. It was set as a speech he was going to make to the crowd. When it was, uh, you know, when I found out that Martin Luther King had been killed, I got in touch with the the person that traveled with Bobby and told him what do you, or asked him what do you want me to do about uh, the campaign event at 17th and Broadway, and after that speech, he was supposed to come to the uh, on Washington Street down the street here to open up his campaign headquarters. And the, uh, his aide said, I'll get back to you. They got back to me and said, he wants to speak. He wants to have the event. He believes that he can help uh, keep peace because uh, the rumors are going around that there's going to be rioting everywhere. Uh, about that time, Mayor Luger... Who Richard Luger, who was mayor, called me and said, I hear that Bobby Kennedy's going to give a speech at 17th and Broadway. I don't want him to do that. That could stoke the fuel of a riot. And I can't get a hold of him directly. Uh, would you convey that information to him? Because your connection to the Kennedy campaign was well known by this time. By that time, yes. And so I called, again, uh, Fred Dutton, who was Bobby's main guy that he traveled with. And he said, uh, no, the senator wants to do it, and he doesn't care what Mayor Luger wants. So then uh, I call Luger back. I tell him that. He tells me he's going to run fire hoses across all the intersecting roads Mm -hmm. so that people won't be able to drive there in that because it's against the law to run over a fire hose. And so I called them back and they said, we don't care. Not to necessarily defend them because, I mean, you're talking 50 years ago, but I mean, riots were happening all over the country. So they had to be as preventative as possible when it comes to congregation and how people are getting along and how people are acting, correct? Yes. I, I mean, they were well within their reason to to do that. Sure, it wasn't necessarily antagonistic no, as much as it, it was it like, was look, not. we're trying to keep the peace. Mayor Luger's a very nice man. He was nice in the conversations. He was a concerned leader of the city. And he, uh, I... I understood that. 
And Senator Kennedy understood that. But he thought that he could be a force for peace and calm that night. He did. Yes, he did. And he was. And one of the things that stands out about those remarks, and correct me if I'm wrong, it was either the only time or one of the very few times that Robert Kennedy ever mentioned the death of his brother. It was uh, the first time, to the best of my knowledge. That he publicly brought up. Brought up. Because he mentioned my, my brother was killed by, by a white man. white man, man. yes. What was it like to either hear that at the time or to read about it later or both? Because it was it was still a raw wound, emotional wound, not only for the family, but also the country. Well, I was there at the speech and and got there late, but he was on the he came in and he gets on this trailer that we had set up for him to speak originally and it was a a nasty night it was cold rainy and when when he got when he started his speech he announced that Martin Luther King was killed a lot of people in the audience did not know that and there was like a gasp and then he made uh, what I I believe one of the finest extemporaneous uh, speeches in politics uh, in our political history in a very short, concise, meaningful talk. And I believe that because of that speech that um, we did not, we were one of the few cities that did not have any rioting. For those of you who are listening to the podcast, if you go on YouTube, you can search for the speech, not only the speech itself, but you can also see the part where Senator Kennedy turns to someone behind him and asks, do these folks know? And an aide or someone says, I don't think so. And then Senator Kennedy turns around and then makes the announcement. You can see the raw video of it. It's very, very moving. To your point, uh, you can hear the gasps of it, for sure. You're listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley family's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. So April 4th is the night of the assassination, and we're here with Mike Riley, who was campaign chairman, state of Indiana, for Robert Francis Kennedy. April 4th is the night of the assassination, but you've got about a month before the primary voting actually takes place. How did you win Indiana? Well, politics back then wasn't like it is now. Uh, You know, we poured in the Kennedy people had workers from Massachusetts, from New York from all over the country, and 
they did all the things that were done back then. Uh, one was to have district chairman in each congressional district. One was to uh, have a bunch of campaign events throughout the state uh, using members of the Kennedy family. Uh, Ted Kennedy would speak. Rose Kennedy came. Uh, his mother, to, Rose Kennedy. Mm -hmm. His mother and his brothers and sisters. Uh, the whole state was uh, covered by the Kennedys. And there, there was never any question as to we can't afford this or we can't afford that. It was just you went out and you rented typewriters, cars, whatever you wanted to uh, put it on the Kennedy account. Uh, and millions of dollars were spent that way. And it was not regulated at all. During the, the time, the next things that I did for him was to arrange uh, TV sites where he could meet with businessmen, uh, you know, and have a TV taped, use it for a commercial. He came to my house and had a group of housewives uh, and they used that for a commercial. Uh, he he did everything that you could possibly do to win the state of Indiana, and they poured every resource they had. Anyone who's been involved in politics, probably at any level, will will tell you that intra-party primaries can be excruciatingly bruising and uh, venomous. Was that your experience in 68, or was it different? No, it was, that was my experience. <laughs> uh, and what was it like to be in the pit? Well, I can remember the chairman of the Eugene McCarthy uh, campaign, and Ed probably remembers him, too, as a guy by the name of Don Fazek, and he was a lawyer. He was a little short guy, and he and I had exchanged words probably maybe 15 times during that campaign, and they weren't really nice conversations. And what were uh, you arguing about? Like, well, was there know, a little bit of jealousy? Because, you know, our, Robert Kennedy was such a rock. I mean, Eugene McCarthy was a distinguished public official, elected official. But it certainly did not have anywhere near the aura or, or rock star charisma that Robert Kennedy had. No, that, that was correct. And so, you know, the campaign events that, that they would be at sometime jointly or sometime right after each other were there wasn't any love lost between either campaign. Because Robert Kennedy clearly did not think Eugene McCarthy could a at the beginning beat Lyndon Johnson for the nomination or B after Johnson got out that McCarthy could be the next president of the United States. That's right. He didn't. Uh, but McCarthy was the first one out. He had a lot of courage. 
to take on a sitting president. Uh, and, and I think Robert Kennedy realized that. And he, he was probably nicer to Eugene McCarthy than a lot of his campaign staff. <laughs> and I had read in, in, in the books that I've either read about Kennedy or the 68 campaign that the fact that McCarthy had the courage to come out first against Lyndon Johnson is it fair to say that eight at Robert Kennedy, like he wished he had been the first to do that? Well, he had the chance to be the first and chose not to. Correct. And and so the criticism of him saying, well, he saw the way uh, McCarthy campaigned in New Hampshire and what the end result was, and that gave him the confidence to go out, come out and go against the president. And that was true. I mean, that's right. Uh, he, of course, he felt, as did his supporters, that he would make a better president than Eugene McCarthy. But in turn, I never, ever heard Robert Kennedy or Ted Kennedy say anything bad to me about Eugene McCarthy. When you reference the New Hampshire primary in which Lyndon Johnson won, but won by a very small margin against a relatively unknown senator. I think McCarthy's from Minnesota. Minnesota. And you'd have to remember that in 64, Lyndon Johnson wins this massive landslide over 60% of the popular vote and nearly 500 electoral votes. So he's coming off in 64, this massive victory. He had significant wins domestically with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, Medicare, Medicaid. But the Vietnam War was eating his support alive. McCarthy came out mostly in opposition, if not totally in opposition to the Vietnam War as a rationalization of his candidacy. How did Robert Kennedy talk about the Vietnam War to you and to Hoosiers? Because he was famous for his mea culpas of like, I was there when some of these policies were put in place and I was wrong. And now look what's happened. And that's how he treated the Vietnam War. He said, you know, my brother was for the war. I was for the war. I was for what was done. I was wrong, and and he he did not try to equivocate about that. He just said, I mean, he had the uh, approach that, hey, I've made mistakes, I've I've taken stances that now I've thought about, and they were wrong, and Vietnam was one of them. He, he was uh, pretty candid in a lot of meetings. I don't know if you remember, but he went to IU Medical School and oh, yeah, spoke to right. a bunch of doctors and said we should have what is now known as Medicare uh, for everyone in the country. And the doctors were not happy about that. Uh and, you know, I remember sitting in a room and his brother, Ted, said to him, 
don't you think we could have done that speech somewhere else? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the famous thing at the, at the IU Medical School was when Senator Kennedy articulated his proposal, one of the med students raised their hand and said, where are you going to get the money for all this? And Robert Kennedy looked at him and said, from you. That's, that's true. I mean, You're the I, people who are going to pay that. for this. Yes. It's May 7th, 1968, the day of the Indiana Democratic primary. Do you remember much about that day in particular and the night and the feeling that it gave the campaign to win in Indiana? Well, uh, I could probably, if I thought about it long enough, give you a hour-to-hour resuscitation about what went on, but the first part of the day, Ted Kennedy wanted to see how precincts were going, and he wanted to talk to people. So he and I went from precinct to precinct in different sections of the city of Indianapolis, and he'd get out and he'd talk to poll workers. Uh, you know, in the interim, he was telling me Irish jokes, and uh, <laughs> he would Can you tell one. Well, I can't do it in his brogue, but he told me he goes, you know, when I in and this was a story more than a joke, but he said when I was running to uh, succeed my brother, people said I couldn't beat this Eddie McCormick who was. Uh, a nephew of the Speaker of the House. And Eddie McCormick was saying, don't vote for Ted Kennedy. He's never held a job in his life. He doesn't know how working people have to do things, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, that was hurting my campaign. And he said, we were on uh, a dock somewhere, and he said, this big, large, tall dirty-looking stevedore said to him, Hey, Kennedy, is it true you've never had a job? And Ted mumbled some response, and he goes, You haven't missed a goddamn thing. (laughs) (laughs) And at that point in time, Ted said, I walked back to the car and thought, I'm going to win this. (laughs) So, uh, you know, it was, he and I maintained a friendship long after his father's death. And uh, he was just a wonderful person. Was Robert Kennedy here in Indiana on primary election night? Yes. Uh, We, we had changed our hotel to the old Lincoln hotel where, now it's a, a Marriott, I think. But uh, he made his victory speech in that hotel. Uh, and at the time, Gerard Darty, who did, you know, was really the mastermind of the campaign. It wasn't me. Uh, Gerard Darty and myself were invited by Robert Kennedy to be on the stand with him. And we were the only two people besides him that that were there. 
and, and an interesting sidelight was uh, uh, Senator Vance Harkey, who was Indiana's one of Indiana's senators, never really endorsed Bobby, but was always sniffing around the edges to <laughs> to uh, have Bobby endorse him. And uh, that night, he asked me to intervene to get uh, him on the podium with Senator Kennedy. And I said, well, he's going to pick whoever he wants. And uh, as it turned out, he did not want Senator Arpey. <laughs> and did, did Senator Birch buy play much of a role or congressman andy jacobs probably the two most prominent federal democrats at the time andy jacobs uh was definitely for bobby kennedy and and i think he made that public birch by was when he was talking to bobby kennedy's people he was for bobby kennedy when he was talking to lyndon johnson's people he was for Lyndon Johnson, <laughs> and uh, Birch had this way of campaigning that he'd come up to you and say, "Hey, Mike, how are you?" And he'd hit you with, you know, he'd just hit you with his fist on your shoulder. It was jab you a way of greeting. And I do remember Bobby Kennedy talking to someone, and he said, "If that goddamn Birch hits me on the." shoulder one more time I'm going <laughs> to knock the <laughs> shit out of it. because Birch really didn't endorse him he didn't so you have the interval the month between the May primary May 7th primary in Indiana and then the June 4th primary in California Kennedy had a couple of wins nationwide in some states but he famously lost Oregon which he described as one big suburb. So they didn't understand his message, the message that he was uh, of, of maybe haves and have nots and uplifting other Americans. He's like, that's just not going to play in Oregon. And he lost that primary to Eugene McCarthy comes into California, famously wins big uh, rejuvenates his campaign. Cause the Oregon primary, if I recall, that's the only election that Kennedy ever lost. That's correct. And so, were you in Indiana watching the California primary, or did you go out there? No, I was in Indiana, and what we were doing was uh, lining up the delegates that would vote for Robert Kennedy at the convention in Chicago. And the the night that he was assassinated is I I watched the California returns and till midnight or so and went to bed and then someone called me and said you've got to turn your tv on and i i saw that and you knew it wasn't good news when you got that no no i i knew it wasn't good news because you were gearing up as you mentioned earlier about the convention fight vice president hubert humphrey had jumped into the race because president johnson had withdrawn but Humphrey didn't run in any primaries, as I recall. He was he was all about the convention and the party bosses and the elected officials who were going to support him as a sitting vice president. Were you convinced 
despite all of this that was happening, but when you knew that, that Bobby Kennedy had won the California primary, were you convinced, A, he was going to be the nominee, and were you convinced, B, he was going to be the 37th president of the United States? Absolutely. Yes, I was. Uh, he had the... You know, I thought Nixon was going to be his uh, opponent, and I thought he would make Nixon look really bad. And I think that he would have won uh, hands down. And I think that he, he would have beaten Hubert Humphrey in the Democrat convention, uh, gone on, and the course of our country would have changed. Were you in Chicago for the convention? Did you go? Yes. Were you there for some of the uh, highlights? Uh, yes, it was funny that I was a delegate, and we would leave our hotel, get into a bus, and there would be like these boards up like for construction, and the bus would go down there. We wouldn't see any people. We just were directly, and there were police officers about every two or three hundred yards standing on the inside of these boards. And, and really, you could, we didn't know anything about what was going on outside as long as we were in that path. Were you there the nights? Were you in Grant Park? Were you there for that? No, I, I, I mean, I was in Chicago, but I did not get out to look at that. And Grant Park is the, the, I hate to say it, ground zero, but probably no better term for it, where the protesters and the police clashed, ended up being on national television. Were you in the convention hall much for the convention? Yes, I was. Most of the time I spent was in the convention hall. And part of the reason for that was, is there was still a uh, group of people, myself being one of them, that wanted Ted Kennedy mm. to run, and we thought that we could get him nominated at that convention. And, you know, the I wasn't a major decision maker about that but obviously the people around him that were his closest advisors must have told him that they didn't think it was a good idea when you were standing in chicago or in the convention hall or both did it just reinforce the tragedy of the assassination in other words this this wouldn't be happening if Robert Kennedy was A, alive, and or B, the nominee of the party? I, I think I always felt that way, that uh, because he just was such a unique human, and he was a, a kind person, and I think that, to me, one of the things in life that's always been the most important and I hope I've instilled it to my children, is that you need to be kind to people. And if you are, it will make you a better person. 
and it will make them a better person. And I think he really believed that, that he would have been a just, kind president. Uh, One of the things he did was unheard of by presidential candidates, and probably he was the first one to do it and probably the last one to do it. But he personally called the spouses of everybody in Indiana that was working on his campaign, you know, in sort of a senior level, if you would call him, was taking a lot of time out of their life, their family's life, and he would call and say, uh, you know, this is Robert Kennedy. I know your husband's gone a lot from home, but he's helping me on an important thing. I hope you'll be patient with him. Is a loss that profound just something you never get over? Uh, no, I, I don't think I've ever, when I talk about it, my voice cracks. I, I, I just think of how great it would have been for our country. There would have been no Watergate. There would have been a quicker end to the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War was, was fought by poor black African-Americans, poor Appalachian uh, people. It was not a war of equals. It was a war fought by young kids that were disadvantaged. And that was wrong. And I think he would have stopped it a lot quicker. And I think that there would be life saved. Uh, Were you involved at all as we wrap up here on the Leaders and Legends podcast? Were you involved at all in Ted Kennedy's campaign in 1980 against Jimmy Carter? Yes, I was. There's a new book out about that, which I read this summer. It's called Camelot's End, I believe. It's absolutely fascinating. Takes you through that primary uh, fight. And I did get some of the sense that when people were pushing Ted Kennedy to run against an incumbent, unpopular Democratic president, that there had to have been some sort of channeling of what his brother wished he had done earlier in 67, 68 to run against an unpopular Democratic incumbent government or incumbent president. I think that, it, yeah, I think that's part of it. Uh, I think it was a mistake for him to do that because I don't think he was fully vested in the effort uh, to do that. He, I think he probably took the advice of some people that upon hindsight might not have been the best advice. Uh, and, and he also did not do well uh, in explaining the Mary joke. Kopechne accident and, mm. and um, you know he, he, he was not a good candidate at that time Is it fair to say that the your interaction with the Kennedy family didn't end in 68 continued through the 70s uh, until uh, I'm assuming Teddy Kennedy's passing and your connection with the family went on How much did that connection, did that interaction with the Kennedy family as a whole 
change your life? Well, I think that, you know, I, I saw what I had always felt that, that uh, they were consistent with is that they were for the people who were not wealthy. They were not fans of billionaires or millionaires, although they were in their friend's circle, I'm sure. But they had the, uh, they had the best interests of people like me, middle class, poor people, uh, that they were... I've always thought that those who have a lot should share what they have with those who are less fortunate. And I believe they really felt that. Uh, And I know Ted Kennedy was really an effective senator in putting forth a lot of the issues that dealt with that, that dealt with treating people who were not as well off as uh, we thought they should be in American life. I think he dedicated his life to that, and the things he did uh, were great. I remember uh, Ed, Tracy, and his wife, Becky, and myself went to Ted Kennedy's house for a party after Clinton's inauguration, and Governor Bai was came into that party, and he looks at Ed and I, and he says, why are you here? And, and we laughed, and I said, well, why are you here? I'm Ted's friend. <laughs> <laughs> we have spent the last hour with Mike Riley, campaign manager, Robert Francis Kennedy, 1968 campaign for president here in Indiana. Mike, we can't thank you enough well, for coming thank on. You for doing this. Well, we love history on this program, and we also have to thank the delightful and wonderful Ed Tracy for setting this up. Ed, thank you very much for doing so. And there's one other person I want to mention. Amazingly, there's I know three people who are at the 68 convention in Chicago, the Democratic convention. Now it's Mr. Riley, Ed Tracy, and I also want to mention uh, Dr. Jim Riggs, whose daughter, Dean, and I graduated from Howe High School together. Jim, if you're listening to this, thank you so much for your kindness for me as a kid, you and your wife, Jan. Thank you for feeding me multiple times, and thank you for imparting your love of history on me. You're a wonderful man, and you're part of a wonderful family. Thank you for listening to Leaders and Legends podcast. Thank you, Mr. Riley. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Strategies.com.